This morning I want to continue with the theme from last time, which is to look at how we connect our more inner work with our responsiveness to the larger world. And this, these reflections really come, are occasioned uh, in my own mind by the um, 10th anniversary of September 11th. And I want to explore that connection of inner and outer further. How we can understand the larger world in part through the lens of our practice and how that very challenging for most of us aspect of knowing how to respond to the larger world can really be deeply informed by our practice and that we can have more of a seamless whole and not necessarily become, you know, some uh, activist out there on the front lines all the time. That's not particularly what I'm encouraging, but more to see more deeply really how the larger process of transformation occurs and to understand one's own life in relationship to the larger world in whatever way one's doing. Really, it's an invitation for us all to become more and more peacemakers in our own ways. And our own ways may mean that the peacemaking primarily occurs at the level of the family or at the level of the community or at work or through our art or through teaching yoga. So it really, what I'm wanting to encourage is a very broad sense, but really a a deepening of our sense of our own vocation, what our own gifts call us to do, but a seeing that our own fullness is really what the world calls for. Our own fullness and our own sense of connection of all the levels. It's very much like something that I loved hearing uh, a few years ago from uh, Dr. Howard Thurman, who is a great man who's not very well known, was um, an African-American theologian and mystic activist. He started the first interracial church in uh, the San Francisco area, I believe in the 1940s. He died about 1980 and wrote quite a lot and very active in civil rights movement and uh, very drawn to Gandhi in many ways. And um, in the last decade of his life, uh, a young man came to him and was confused about what to do. And you might expect Howard Thurman, this great bodhisattva really, a great being who dedicated himself to helping others, might have said, well, we really need people for this or we really need people for that. He didn't say that. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Very interesting statement, right, from an activist. Don't ask, but he was a deeply mystical, spiritually grounded activist. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That's going to be the spirit of what I'm going to be suggesting. That when we're fully alive and we make the connections between the different parts of our lives, including our participation in the larger systems, that's what the world needs. So connecting our practice with the larger world is challenging. And yet I think it's something really uh, beautiful and crucial to do. I think our, in my own experience, there's something in us which wants to at least have that part of our lives um, understood. I think many of us can feel a pain or a, a sadness or a yearning and it can be very hard to know for many of us what to do. Some of us may know clearly how to respond, but for many of us it's hard to know. And it's easy to feel disconnected, sometimes to feel 
guilty. I think there's something in our being which yearns for wholeness, which wants, in, in, in some ways, wants to have a story that helps us know how to respond to the world, a narrative, you know. You know it, it, because I think when, the, when we see the world, and I'm talking about the world, especially in talking about some of the hard things, but I think some of the beautiful developments are, are not always focused on, or sometimes they're more invisible. But I think often when we think about the world, we think also often about what the uh, painful aspects are. And there's something in us which wants to know how to respond to that, to have all the parts of our lives um, seamlessly connected, which wants wholeness in a way. And I think sometimes when we lead our lives in a more private way, we may feel like that wholeness is not being touched. We want an account. We want some, some sense of, uh, you know, is human nature basically good and deep and beautiful and connected with love? If that's the case, what's going on? <laughs> you know, I think, I think our mind is a little baffled sometimes, you know, because the, the, the core of the spiritual practice that we do has a very optimistic view of human nature. You know, it basically says, and the invitation is to discover that at our core we are love and wisdom and brilliance. And we're invited to explore that. The path to really touching that deeply is not easy. And we have to go sometimes through a lot of uh, purification and through um, touching and releasing the places where there are knots and where there's pain. And that's definitely part of things. And maybe we can see that that's what the world has to do as well. You know, and it's mysterious sometimes how that occurs. But we have this optimistic view and how to hold what the, what's there in the world and how to make the connection between what we do in an inner way. You know, we may want to have an account like we hear if you have heard uh, Martin Luther King speak. He, he often would say, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it points towards justice. You know, a kind of optimistic view, or a sense that we may be evolving in an evolutionary way. And the ups and downs are sometimes hard to fathom. You know, but we may want to, want to hold that. So I think we're drawn to that. And the, in this uh, connecting of inner and outer, it's also really important to recognize that there are cycles uh, for each of us personally. You know, I, I know that, that there are cycles of going more in, inside and then responding more outwardly. Um, the great British historian Arnold Toynbee says that actually what really feeds what we call civilization are cycles of withdrawal and return. That many, in fact, he thinks that most of the great contributors to civilization had times when they went um, in a more inner way. And then, and this was a very creative time, and out of that creative activity came contributions. He calls it the, the cycle of withdrawal and return. And it's something that I think is true for us on many levels. We do that, in a sense, every day when we practice. And, and we may feel that creativity, you know. We have the silent time where we do a, a day long, where we do a retreat, and we may feel how that's nourishing and even necessary. You know, I do uh, almost every Wednesday when I teach, I teach in the morning, and I do, a, I do my Wednesday Sabbath, which I haven't heard in religious traditions <laughs> before, but I, I stay at Spirit Rock the rest of the day and I practice. You know, and it's very, very nourishing. It's kind of a little bit like going into retreat mode for part of every week. It's, all, of course, old tradition of Sabbath, East and West. And... Um, Though that cycle can be very, very beautiful. We do it on a daily basis or weekly or periodically. You know, I was thinking of um, Gandhi, one of the times in Gandhi's life when he didn't know what to do, you know, and everyone was telling him, you should know what to do, you're Gandhi. (laughs) And it was uh, in 1929, 1930 in India, and he didn't know what to do. And... You know, there was a lot of turmoil and confusion in the uh, movement for independence for India. And he decided just to go into seclusion 
basically hang out on his porch and meditate a lot. There's a lot of pressure not to do that. I don't know if there was so much inner pressure, but he sat on his porch and he said, I want to hear the inner voice that tells me what to do. And he sat on that porch and was right near the river and he was there for six weeks. People visiting him asking, do you know yet what to do? (laughs) And he said, not yet, I'm still listening. And after six weeks, he knew what to do. And he had the idea to walk from his community to the ocean and start making salt. You know that story that it's in the movie, if you've seen the Gandhi movie, that the the British um, said that only we can make salt. Crazy when you think about it, right? But because salt was necessary for preservation in in a tropical climate in a time before um, you know, widespread refrigerators. And there was a prohibition against making salt. And he said this, he had the idea, this is the, a real symbol of the oppression, and we will go make salt nonviolently. And he, so he led what was called the Salt March, and it came out of the silent time, and it was, a, you know, it led to massive um, action all over India. and. Historians often say that it was in a way a turning point. And it came out of that cycle of withdrawal and return. So I want to recognize that. You know, I know for myself there have been times when I was primarily inner focused for several years. When I was younger, like when I was coming of age, I had been more of an activist, and my activist friends said, What are you doing? Or what are you not doing? <laughs> and just to know that that's very true, that there are times for each of us when we need to really go inside. And Grouse, I think of someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, who is, you know, almost coined the phrase "engage Buddhism." And there was a time, there were many times in his life when he was primarily innerly focused. I know a lot of his recent activity came out of five years of primarily meditating and gardening. Right? So just to recognize that that there's not some that we. A lot of what I'll be suggesting is that it's really a deep listening to ourselves and to our world that calls forth something beautiful in terms of our vocation, in terms of our gifts, in terms of knowing what to do. So last time I suggested uh, two guidelines, or two broad guidelines for... um, reflecting some on the 10th anniversary of September 11th and what's happened, and looking at the outer world, and connecting it with our inner practice. And those two suggestions were these. Uh, First, really to keep seeing the connection of the inner and the outer. You know, and one way to do that is to look at what I found in teaching in this area, It was very helpful to talk about three realms of our lives or three domains of our lives. The first is our our more inner and individual life, kind of more more of our our life of um, exploring our own nature, our own wishes, um, in meditation, exploring what's there, the emotions, the thoughts, and so forth. And that's one very crucial domain of practice. And a second is what we might call our more relational part of our life, our participation in families, at work, with organizations, uh, in friendships, uh, deep relationships, and so forth. We can call that our relational part of our lives. And then there's our participation in the larger collective life. And that's the simplification, but it can be helpful to see that in a sense we can have a a way of practicing in each of those areas. And what I have found is that the nature of our practice is essentially the same. Whatever we do in those three areas, it's really to see ourselves or our relationships or our world with clarity, with wisdom. It's to open our hearts. It's to be mindful. It's to see where we're stuck, see where we're hurt, to learn to let go to respond with compassion. No different. No different in all those areas. And um, 
So the first guideline I gave was to see, to see, start seeing more of the connections between the inner and the outer. And one way we can do that in a very practical way, and I'm sure many of us are doing that, is to see, you know, and this is a, probably a really important part of most people's practice, is to see the relationship between the first two areas I named. Between the individual, what we look at when we meditate, when we look more in an inward way, and then how, does, how do we bring that out into our everyday lives, and especially in terms of family, friends, relationships, work, organizations, community, the more face-to-face types of relationships that we have. How do we start doing that? And last time I asked us to kind of take as a reference point for going into the harder material related to the uh, world after 9-11, to look at a part of, maybe a, a part of our relational lives where there might be some difficulty or conflict, a challenging relationship, some area where we feel stuck sometimes. And have that be a reference point, because I believe that when we really know how to work with difficulties individually or relationally, we really have guidance for how to do it collectively. I'll bring up that theme continually. And another way it's expressed um, is, this is from the um, 9x yellow pages. It expresses the same idea. If it's out there, it's in here. The the yellow pages. (laughs) If it's out there, it's in here. So, same point. Expressed a little differently. And also, when we look at each of these domains, we find that there are sometimes ways that we want to change them. So the uh, further guidance is, I read this last time, and I wanted to read it again. This is from um, uh, Dr. Seuss, um, the If I Ran the Zoo. So this is also guidance for our relating to the larger world. You know, if you, it's kind of the metaphor of the zoo, right? Okay. It's a pretty good zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, and the fellow who runs it it seems proud of it too. But if I ran the zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, I'd make a few changes. That's just what I'd do. And maybe one more, one more quote about that inner-outer connection. This is from Martin Luther King. Um, and it was for him a turning point when he came in contact with Gandhi's work, because he thought originally that the core teachings in his tradition, which he focused especially on as the love ethic of Jesus, he said at first he thought that only made sense in personal life. It didn't make sense in the larger world. This is what he said. Prior to reading Gandhi, I had concluded that the ethics of Jesus were only effective in individual relationships. The the turn-the-other-cheek philosophy and the love-your-enemies philosophy were only valid, I felt, when individuals were in conflict with other individuals. When racial groups and nations were in conflict, a more realistic approach seemed necessary. But after reading Gandhi, I saw how utterly mistaken I was. Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. So that's again a suggestion that it's possible to, and you know, that he interpreted nonviolence as a complete extension of individual spiritual practice. So again, we're getting guidance, not necessarily resolution. So the other guideline that I used for um, looking at the the world was to use a teaching that I first learned from a Vietnamese friend named Thich Minh Duc, which was a teaching that expanded the core Buddhist teaching that says there are two pillars of our practice, or it sometimes says there are two wings of the Dharma. The The Dharma is like a bird that flies, and one wing is wisdom, and one wing is compassion. And that's the essence of our practice. And the Vietnamese said, it's almost, they didn't use the metaphor of the bird, to my knowledge, but they said, we also need courage. And I've thought of it sometimes like the courage is the body of the bird. <laughs> Much like we have wisdom. These are like the three reference points of our practice. So if you're, we're wondering how to practice in any domain, think of wisdom, compassion, and courage. And say, what does that mean for me in each of these areas, in my individual life, in my relational life? 
and come back to those three reference points. So it's almost like I sometimes think wisdom is the, the mind or the clarity aspect. Compassion is the heart aspect, resting in the heart. And courage is the responsiveness aspect or the ethical aspect, how we respond and act in a given situation. And so I used that as a lens last time, and I wanted to expand a little bit on that, that we, when we look at wisdom in relation to the larger world, we, it, it sometimes it's hard to do, and we don't necessarily have clear teachings. People have, are beginning to do that. How do we use basic teachings to look at things? How do we look, for example, to understand causes and conditions? How, for example, as it's said in the Dhammapada, that violence only leads to violence, and that only love really heals violence. Ancient teaching. You know, in the Dhammapada, it's a, right at the beginning of the text, it says, violence never heals violence. Only love heals violence. This is a primordial teaching. Right at the beginning of that text from 2,500 years ago. And how do we understand these causes and conditions? How, as a response to violence, there's further violence, further war that has killed many, many times the number of original dead. Very, very sad. You know, and we can understand that. Uh, and, and um, you know, to see the relationships, you know, in the outer world. As I mentioned last time, there's sometimes been a taboo in this country at actually really trying to understand the sources of September 11th and what came afterwards. Almost a taboo against rational discussion. I mean, it's sad. It's like a kind of re- you know, collective regression on the basis of fear and confusion that has occurred. Um, where we don't want to look at the causes, you know, that the, the violence was atrocious. And yet we, when we see it only as evil, there's a refusal to understand, which means a refusal really to understand ourselves. That the, the attacks had reasons. You know, the methods were horrible, you know, and not to be, you know, I think always to be condemned. You know, and they certainly had their own mode of, you know, the attackers had their own mode of confusion, regression, and so forth, you know. But the, to, you know, the statement that the reason that they were attacking is that they hate our freedoms. Do you remember that? There was kind of a refusal to understand you know, that there were, there were reasons. Mostly they were related to policies. Most all, you know, that's that... Uh, that, you know, and there were very explicit points made. So, so even if the, even if the the um, attacks were horrendous, there were reasons. You know, and one of the, and this really, I think, ultimately relates to a point about resting in the heart as well and compassion, that we can look at in our daily lives. That when we are in a conflict with someone, can we maintain a sense of empathy? and a sense of hearing what is the deeper need coming, even if the methods are incredibly unskillful. This is very hard in daily life. You know, you're in a conflict with someone, the person is, let's say, abusive, or uses vile language, or does all sorts of things which are horrible. Can you notice how we too tend to make up a story that's a gross simplification where we don't actually recognize that there might be reasons for what the person is doing? even if the methods are horrible? Can we see that in daily life? Are we ultimately at, our, at certain moments not very different? You know, the, what, what, um, what I've learned from, from uh, peacemakers is that peacemakers basically try to listen and try to listen for what's underneath the, the perhaps very unskillful and horrendous strategy. You know, try to try to tune into causes and conditions, and so that the wisdom sees the causes and conditions, and the compassion tries to tune into the pain that is behind unskillful actions. Not easy, right? 
And again, we can see how that's hard just in a very personal level, perhaps with your partner at certain moments, right? Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> that, that, um, and that, that's just where that parallel between the inner, between the individual, the relational, and the collective can be so helpful. Because we can see that. We tend to maybe, I tend to maybe look outwardly and say, oh gosh, there's really, there's delusion there. There's confusion. They're not, and then say, and I'm of course different. I'm self-righteous. I see that. Mm-hmm. And, but yet I can, when I see how I am prone to the same tendency, then compassion can arise. So there's the resting in wisdom, there's a resting in compassion, there's a resting in responsiveness or courage. So we can see the, the patterns, we can see, we can use the tools of our practice to see more outwardly. You know, uh, one of the keys of our practice is to really notice clearly, this is a wisdom dimension, to notice clearly greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are taken to be what are sometimes called the three poisons or the roots of suffering. Our own kind of compulsive greed, our own compulsive aggression or hatred, and our own compulsive delusion. So it's not so much compulsive, it's just there. And we study that. You know, to do practice at the individual or the relational level is to study how we get caught, how we get caught in all of these tendencies. And a big part of our practice is to study that. You know, I think, I think generally practice has these two dimensions in each of these areas. On the one hand, we look at where we're stuck. We look at stuck places. We look at places where there is greed, hatred, delusion, ignorance, and so forth. Some, a lot of it from the past. You know, a lot of the reasons why we're stuck is because of our relationship to past conditioning. You know, and a lot of our practice is to um, deconstruct that conditioning, right? To find, okay, here's where I have a persistent um, way of reacting. You know, I've told the story often for myself. I could notice how when, when I think that someone, or think and feel that someone hasn't listened to me, and I really want that person to listen to me, I notice that I, that I have a lot of reactivity, something I've, been, I've worked on a lot. But it took, at a certain point, I was really noticing that, that that's, that's an area where there's a lot of reactivity. And I could notice that. You know, and I could, many of us share that. Because, <clears throat> you know, when we get to the basics of human life, what we most want is basically to be cared for, listened, seen, recognized, loved. It's, it's not much more than that, really. All the complexity of human life can sometimes um, reduce to that in terms of what we most deeply want. So I could, I could study my own patterns of reactivity. And we do that. And there's something perhaps that was from the past, you know, from many, many years. And there, there's that way that part of our practice is identifying where we get stuck, where we get reactive, and learning how to transform it. And the beauties of this practice is that we give tools for transformation. Mindfulness, loving kindness, community, support. A lot of it's just knowing that we're actually very, very similar and that my own situation is actually not, that, not as unique as I thought. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you are not uniquely flawed. <laughs> I'm glad to tell you and I'm sorry to tell you because we get a certain amount of satisfaction from kind of perverse satisfaction from thinking that I am uniquely problematic. Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> okay. I sometimes ask these questions, can anyone relate to that? I've, last time I learned I should ask the question, can anyone not relate to that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's pervasive. So we work with the stuck places, and I think we can do this personally, interpersonally, and collectively. And the collective can take longer, right? We may dedicate ourselves to working with a stuck place in the society. You know, it could be racism or how children are treated or education or the medical system or whatever. And that's just dedicating ourselves to working with a stuck place may be our work. You know? And then the other aspect of practice, the other broad aspect of practice is cultivating balance, equanimity, and beautiful qualities. 
It's cultivating wisdom, mindfulness, loving kindness. And it's almost in my practice, it's almost like a, sometimes there's been like a, a balance between those. Like sometimes one's more the focus, working with the stuckness, the transformative aspects of practice. And then sometimes the focus is really on strengthening uh, what we might call our awakened qualities. And even hanging out with our awakened qualities for long periods of time. So they get stronger. So we get a sense more and more, this is actually who I am. And the stuck places are becoming less and less prominent. (laughs) Or they're becoming, they're losing their majority rule (laughs) function. (laughs) They're they're starting to get outvoted, at least for periods of time. But I think it's helpful to think of our practice in that way. Both there's the transformative attention to suffering, to stuck places, to places where, which really need attention because there's where pain is there. And then the places where, and then the times when we're cultivating the beautiful qualities. And so we work with that sense of um, wisdom of clearly seeing, and we can bring that to the society. We can bring our sense of seeing clearly stuckness, greed, hatred, and delusion in the society. And look at that, look with lenses like that. There's um, one way this is said, let me see if I can find this, is um, one of the great translators of um, the Buddhist texts in the recent years has been an American monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi. If you look at all those large tomes in the bookstore, you know, that are, look like there are a thousand pages or something from wisdom publications, he's the, he's, has the current state-of-the-art translations. Recently, you know, after many years as a monk, he's been bringing his attention to connecting individual practice to responding to the world. It's quite something. You know, and he set up, he said, people of Buddhist background don't have the equivalent of what are there for a long time in Jewish, Christian, Islamic traditions. Which are, so he set up something which he called Buddhist aid. And actually that's not true in terms of what's existed in Asia, because actually there are many of those kind of organizations in the Asian context, but maybe he was speaking more in the Western context. And so he set up this organization, he gave attention, and he said, we have to give attention to how greed, hatred, and delusion manifest collectively as well. This is what he said. The Buddha's mission, the reason for his arising in the world, was to free beings from suffering by uprooting the evil roots, he said, of greed, hatred, and delusion. These sinister roots don't only exist, however, in our own minds. Today they have acquired a collective dimension and have spread out over whole countries and continents. To help free beings from suffering today, therefore, requires that we, count, that we counter the systemic or institutional embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion. And another writer who's a friend, David Loy, with whom I'll teach a retreat next, next May here, he says we have to really identify the institutional nature of greed, hatred, delusion, how greed is, embo- is embodied, really, in many of our institutions. I was looking at, I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle a few days ago, and I noticed something, and I read the business pages sometimes. I don't know if anyone does that, but just, I mean, if you want to study institutional <laughs> forces, you have to read the business pages. And, and there was something there about the ups and downs of the stock market. It was really, it really struck me. It was, I don't know, it was some, I don't know, some broker. I don't know if it was anyone famous or was maybe a, an analyst. He said, you know, the market is always in one of two modes. <laughs> fear or greed. Now we are in fear mode. And I said, whoa. That's, that's, an, inside, that's an insider statement, right? I said, hmm. Um, and that, these are the forces which are so responsible for so many things happening, right? Fear or greed? Not my interpretation. <laughs> that came... Uh, right there. So that, that was very powerful. How do we see systematic embodiments of greed? How do we see systematic embodiments of aggression or hatred? You know, very similar to what Martin Luther King said in pointing out that the three forces which we have to counter institutionally for him were the um, forces of racism, the forces of militarism, and the forces that bring about poverty. 
And that's for him was, was the target. So how do we start looking and seeing that there can be systematic greed, hatred, and delusion? Not, maybe it's not so hard to see them, really. It's harder to know what to do. We can see systematic delusion, you know, reflecting on September 11th. It's very easy to see systematic delusion. I'm not just talking about the various lies for the wars, you know, but I'm talking about also the way that we don't know the effects of our actions. That the military refuses to say how many people have been killed. That's a policy. You know, or that we don't really know the names or faces. You know, and I think maybe all people fighting wars do something like this. They have to dehumanize or not actually see. If, if we really knew the suffering, our hearts of compassion would arise. And that would be bad business or bad for, bad for war and so forth. I think that's really why we want to know what's happening, because our hearts are good. You know, when we really know what's happening, we want to respond. And so institutional delusion is necessary to keep things going. It's helpful to see that, to see that. And so how, how do we rest in the heart? How do we develop wisdom? How do we develop compassion? How do we have those balance out? I mentioned last time how sometimes the wisdom dimension, when we really look clearly at something, without the compassion, it can lead to imbalance. It can lead to being overly intellectual or cynical or indifferent or disconnected from our hearts. So we have to do all of these. How do we rest in the heart in relationship to the world? You know, I don't know. I think sometimes that I would almost like you know, to do metta towards the world as a practice or to find ways of connecting with one's own um, emotions. Very, very crucial. And again, influenced very much by Joanna Macy who teaches how to do that, who teaches how to see. And I've done personally a lot of that kind of work with people where we actually, when we do certain practices, we can see that we all actually carry a certain amount of pain for the world. In other societies, there were ways to open up to that. I remember reading a play in college called Riders to the Sea, which is set in Western Ireland. Anyone remember that by John Millington Singh? It's a, it's a very short play. Was, I think as a student I enjoyed reading it because like, it was seven pages long. <laughs> and it's a play in which some fishermen have been lost at sea and people go down to the ocean and they start wailing. There's a public way to express grief. And, that, and that's, that's the case in many societies. You know, I know at... Um, uh, Spring Washam has brought Sabonfu Somme here to Spirit Rock to do rituals. I don't know if anyone has done the grief ritual with her that's done here, but um, in, in those African societies there are public ways to access pain. And that's what Joanna Macy's work does, you know, and their practices. And maybe I think, sometimes I think I should offer that more because we carry that, you know, it manifests as burnout or cynicism when we don't attend to it. And then we have to find ways to do that. It could just be doing metta or doing compassion practice as a regular practice. Ten or fifteen minutes a day, I think, would, would go in that direction. You know, and then working with the emotions that arise. You know, it might be to watch, to watch the news as meditation practice. I've sometimes thought of some retreat of having us watch television as part of the retreat. I, I don't know if I announced that ahead of time, would people come? Maybe not. But, but to do that, how do we do that as a practice? How do we stay in our hearts, you know? How do we stay in our hearts when something difficult happens? How do we work with the different emotions that it might be there, anger, sadness, fear, and so forth? And joy at the beautiful things happening, to tune in to the very positive changes happening, you know? That, you know I think, again, that's not to just to focus on the hard things, but to know that... Um, there are people responding. There are people trying to bring about peace in communities and often doing beautiful work or people trying to develop new institutions, you know, more sustainable institutions so we're not dependent on, on oil and so forth, which again is part of the backdrop for, again, we know, for a lot of the more collective policies. How do we, how do, we do that? 
And how do we respond? How do we develop the courage to know what to do? To really, you know, a first step is really to be grounded in the ethical precepts. And we, we had a renewal of the ethical precepts this morning. And they really teach us to, to respond. Um, we can interpret the ethical precepts also in collective ways, as someone like Thich Nhat Hanh says, do not kill, do not let others kill. Or we can interpret the precept not to take that which is not given and look at the larger society. You know, and we may want to have a personal responses to that, to look at our own responsibility for what is happening and their ways of responding on very local levels. You know, I think that um, making, you know, at least part of the solution is finding ways, as I'm sure many of us are doing, is finding ways to uh, have a different approach to energy, a different approach to food, actually is a very direct response to a lot of the collective issues. It can be very powerful, you know, because I think that a lot of the collective issues are, can be really uh, linked to what we do individually and in communities. I think I want to end, there's a lot more I could say, and a lot more that's in my notes, but I want to end with a kind of visualization that I think also moves more towards the positive. So I want to do a little bit of a guided visualization. So make yourself comfortable. And this is more having to do both with the positive and the sense of responsiveness to the world. And first I would just want to get our visualization muscles warmed up a little. Some people say, I can't really visualize or imagine, but probably we can. So think back to your last meal. This is is not necessarily going to go into really deep territory immediately. (laughs) Think back to your last meal. It could might have been breakfast or it might have been supper yesterday. And visualize what you were eating. Visualize the plate and the food. Maybe imagine the taste. Just bring it to mind. Not so hard. Okay. What we'll do now, not any different than visualizing breakfast in terms of degree of difficulty. So, okay. So, we're sitting here. I want to invite you to go on somewhat of a journey, to go into the clouds above this earth. You can fly. And you fly above Spirit Rock. And you notice yourself there. You're able to travel in space. And you're also able to travel in time. And actually you're at a place in time five years from now. And you're looking down at this area, at the earth. Just feel that sense of time having passed. And you look down and you actually see yourself in your life. And imagine that you have come more and more alive, that you have responded to the challenge of your life, that you you have developed your gifts more and more. And that if this is the appropriate cycle that you have developed in an inner way, but from time to time, you also can make the connections with the larger world. And some of you may be more directly involved with the outer world. Some of you may know the connection in other ways, know that you're doing your part. 
And know that in these five years, as you become more alive and more and more alive, that part of that is this responsiveness to the world. So just notice what's happening for yourself, what's going on in your life. You can notice perhaps that some, perhaps some inner stuckness that may be there now, may not be there five years from now. You may have worked through that and that other qualities that may be more awakened and beautiful qualities are there, part of that aliveness. And tune in and get a sense of what quality, what stronger and more beautiful qualities are there more now that you notice in yourself. five years from now, in your life, there's a visitor who comes to be with you. This is a wise being. You can imagine anyone. It can be really someone who's alive or someone who lived in the past. But this wise being comes to you. You get a sense of who this being is. Could be someone like the Buddha or your grandmother, a teacher. This wise being has a gift for you and gives you something. Take a look at what that is. And this wise being now speaks to you, just a sentence or two, and listen to what is being said. Now the wise being goes back, leaves you, can say farewell. And now your center of focus goes back to the person watching in the cloud. Five years from now, 
and travels back now in time and space, travels back to the present moment, still in the cloud above Spirit Rock. And then comes back down to being where you are in this hall. Just sitting quietly. Feel free if it's helpful to write something down to, um, to do that. I'd love to hear if anyone wants to report anything from that exercise and we can also then open up to a larger discussion. And I guess, why don't we use the, the mic? I think that would be good. For how many people was there some way that that, there was something that you learned from that exploration? It's interesting, the power of uh, visualization. And it's something you can, one can do on one's own. Anyone like to report something that you found with that exercise? That was just, uh, not, not, didn't take too long. So if that's not working, we can just speak and I'll, I'll repeat the uh, question <coughs> or comment. Anyone, anyone want to report anything from that exercise? Okay, please. You can go. Okay. Testing, testing, one, yeah, (laughs) are we on? Um, I guess, uh, yeah, seeing myself five years from now um, practicing um, um, this mindfulness, one, it just made me feel happy um, and strong um, and at ease. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, I like the uh, wise person coming in and, what he said to me, or the gift he gave, was uh, remember. Mm-hmm. And um, it reminded me of the story of the, in the Gnostic religion about the um, story of Jesus who comes down and, and he's supposed to get a pearl in order to bring it back and get the robes to become sort of the king. And, and um, when he comes down, he, uh, he gets into daily life and he has to get a job and, and he soon forgets why he's there. And it's a bird who comes down and uh, reminds him of why he's there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he, he does it. So it reminded me of that to remember. That was, yeah, that was what the wise person said, just remember. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else like to share your experience? Please. Giving, giving you a workout. <laughs> um, so when we, when you, let's see, well, when we fir- when you first brought us like to, um, you know, what where we wanted to be different or not so much different, but to see ourselves from five years from now, my first um, inkling was be negative. Mm-hmm. And and then quickly it just changed. I thought, wait a minute, you know, there's so much, like, beauty and things that I love, 
And why not start working and, and bringing more of those in my life? Mm -hmm. And um, But it was interesting how my mind goes to the negative first, mm -hmm. and then it just switched immediately, um, mm -hmm. you know, to this more uh, of, of being alive. I like the yeah. statement that you said earlier about, yeah. yeah to find things that make us alive in the world. I, I love that from Howard Thurman. Yeah. See what makes you come alive. That's right. Yeah. How many people also had something similar happen, like you touch some negativity, but, the, um, but, but there was a way that you also could touch the, the beautiful or powerful qualities? How many could relate to that? Yeah. Thank you. And Really, any, any other reflections about the talk or, or sharing uh, what you just experienced would be fine now. So anyone who would like to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Please. So Marina, right? Yes. yes. Um, it, it resonated with me a lot when you said that um, those three uh, causes of suffering are sometimes institutional policies. And I come from the former Soviet Union. Oh, yeah. And I can tell how, you know, most of the population in that country right now is so delusional, mm -hmm. so greedy. And mm -hmm. they tip between greediness and um, anger mm -hmm. and fear, mm -hmm. you know. And there is so much ignorance, mm -hmm. and there are so many good people there. Yeah. So it really touched my heart, and I was like, "How can I make it better?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, thank you, Marina. So part of, you know, I think what I most hope that and we can, may take different things from from this, but I, I love um, having wisdom, compassion, and courage as a you know a short you know a cheat sheet. Okay, want to get a sense of how do I have, if I want to do practice in a given moment, a given situation, tune into those three aspects. And, you know, it's almost like the mind, the heart, and the body in a way. And then for the wisdom aspect, part of wisdom is really to see where there is greed, hatred, delusion in ourselves or in others, and to notice it. And then we notice also if I'm reactive because, oh, they're so delusional. Right? That's. That could be, I could be deluded about how I'm not so deluded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to see that in the society, I think is helpful because, you know, it's just not, it's not always recognized and we get taken in, you know, and it's almost like the way things are presented are almost presented in a way so that we won't see clearly. And so it sometimes takes an effort or just remembering uh, greed, hatred, delusion, and it's amazing how it can really, in some situations, be there for a whole community or for a society in many, many ways, you know, it, um, uh, be the predominant mode, like, like you're saying, you know. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Marina. Maybe one or two more and then we'll, then we'll finish up. Please. I was just in L.A. this last week, and um, my kids are part of the entertainment industry. And I found myself, at the beginning of when I was there, um, just being completely blown away by the delusion. Talked about the delusion <laughs> of greed, you know, of all of that. And so what happened, though, is um, I made a game of connecting with people and noticing the people that were not part of the delusion or that we're connecting in meta ways. Yeah. And there was a lot. It ended up that by the end of the day, I felt like, oh my gosh, there's just this incredible amount of people here in the midst of serious yeah. delusion, you know, <laughs> that are um, not deluded, Yeah. that are really connecting. And it was just this, it was just a best, a good way to flip it. You know, that's that's great, you know, because I'm, yeah. I'm hearing, you know, you're talking about what we sometimes call discriminating wisdom, that can really see things clearly, you know, and not be taken in, and see where there is delusion, where there's not delusion. You know, I mean, it actually goes right back to the, the core text on practicing mindfulness, 
right in you know the the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of what are, what could be translated as states of mind and heart and it says know when the mind is contracted know when the mind is expansive know when the mind is this know when the mind is that and that's not easy but that's what i hear you doing and you didn't say this explicitly but i felt like there there, were, there was a the heart, your heart was there yeah there, there's compassion and it's not it's not from a distance Right? I, I, you didn't say anything about that, but I, that's what I was hearing. Yeah, yeah, and and it's that combination because we can easily see delusion and just go into a distance mode, right? So it's, that's where these three aspects are so crucial. Yeah. Maybe last comment, and then we'll then we'll finish um, in the center aisle. In the past, I've often wondered in my small way how I could make a difference. And in my uh, imagery, my teacher came and said, if you keep practicing um, loving kindness, joy, compassion, and equanimity, you will make a difference. And it brought me back to um, what you said, um, and what can I do? The third one was change consciousness. Yeah changing our own consciousness and then being here at Spirit Rock and serving and supporting yeah. people that come from all over the world to yeah. change their consciousness yeah. will slowly make a difference. I yeah. think it's very important. Yeah. So thank you, thank you for that. You're welcome. That's nicely said and really yeah, the and a lot you know, we were, I was reflecting on this in the ethics uh, renewal that one thing that's hard for us is that often transformation is mysterious when it's happening, how it's happening, whether it's individual or in a relationship or collectively, that it is mysterious. And we, all, we often think we know what's happening, but we actually don't. You know, or the, you know, the examples of you know, how quickly the Soviet Union changed or how quickly South Africa changed. Massive system can sometimes change quickly uh, when the conditions are right. Or just um, individually, how do I, I can be, uh, if I keep on practicing, there's energy for change. And I think we have to be careful if we have a story about how things aren't changing and it gets us down, whether it's individually or collectively. Because a lot of times we have to, we we have to have that openness. And personally, I found it very, very helpful to study some of the mystery of how transformative change occurs. And that, you know, the interdependence of things is very mysterious and how one thing leads to another or what, what works. So maybe I'll, I'll end with that, that thought. It's, it's really, really about being open, um, connecting the heart and mind, being in community so other people can be helpful and say, snap out of it, Donald. What's the story you're telling yourself? <laughs> you know, or in maybe in a more loving way than that. So, and and then to um, you know just to keep training, really keep training, and then keep applying it to whatever one is doing. And above all, we'll let the, the words of Howard Thurman be the final ones. Just let let oneself come more and more alive. I love that. That really is the essence of it. And really, when we do that with, within this framework, uh, it's, it works. Let's just sit quietly for 30 seconds or so to finish. And whatever may have been helpful from the day related to the theme of the talk and to the, or to the visualization, or something that just is totally unrelated, that just came to you, that was helpful, and you're sitting perhaps. Whatever was helpful, let that be there for a while. Whatever intentions you take out of this morning, let them be there.
We end by remembering in a way the mystery of our practice that we practice, that we set transformative processes in motion and it's hard sometimes to know how they work. One of the ways that mystery manifests is that is through our sense of interconnection that our practice has ripple effects on all those whom we meet and then in mysterious ways even beyond the circle of our immediate contacts out into the world where the fruits of our practice we wish may they benefit all may they touch all beings So thank you for your good attention and hope to see you in about three weeks and say hi to Sylvia. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.